everyone, you are listening to List It, where each week we, we, we create a hybrid between a, a debate show, a listicle, and a long-form conversation. And I'm very excited about my guest today because the, the whole idea of this, con- this, this podcast is people bring things in a particular category. And, uh, you know, so, you know, we're going to talk movies and songs and music, a lot of things. But for for my guest today, I am also using it as an opportunity to try to get some understanding of things that baffle me. And that's why (laughs) I'm very excited about my guest, Science Mike. Science Mike, thank you so much for being bamboozled into being on this podcast. Oh, I was thrilled. Thrilled to get the invite. <laughs> hey, for, for those of you who don't know uh, Mike McCarg, he is a speaker, science expert, best-selling author, and a podcaster. He currently hosts the amazing Ask Science Mike podcast and his new book, which, Mike, I really, really loved. And it kind of informed some of uh, some of the stuff I'm going to bring today. You're mm-hmm. a miracle and a pain in the ass, embracing the emotions, habits, and mystery that make you you, and it is available everywhere. Mike, before we jump into the, to the show and introduce the topic, I, I want you to be able to talk about the book real quick because I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, this is book number two. Uh, mm-hmm. It followed Finding God in the Waves. Mm-hmm. What has the reaction been like to to the new one? <laughs> a lot of people writing me letters saying, I didn't expect to cry so much reading a book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it deals uh, with heavy stuff right out of the gate. <laughs> it's pretty, <laughs> pretty heavy. I don't want to give too much away, but, it, it, you know, I think for, for people who are interested in, in issues of identity, but also how the brain works and mental health, mm-hmm. it is a fantastic book and a fantastic fantastic. It's research. a book that's meant to help you get to know you Yeah, and to uh, feel more excited about all of who you are. Yeah, that's what well, the book is about. It, and it delivers. I highly recommend people people checking that out and to check out Ask Science Mike. This is like my own private Ask Science Mike because, like I said, the concept <laughs> of this show is is I tell a guest, "Hey, we're going to talk about this topic. Rank. I want you to bring three or four or five things in that topic." And so some of them are very specific. Like I was telling Mike offline mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of my one of my guests, Annie F. Down, wanted to do Food Network hosts, which is very specific for Mike. I t- I kept it as broad as possible possible because I have some questions. I was like, the only way I'm going to fit these into category of Mike, if I just keep it really open and abroad. So today mm-hmm. we're going to each talk about our three current favorite big ideas in science and technology. Uh, and like I said, mine are, are basically just so that I can be brought up to speed on what these things actually are. So <laughs> my cursory knowledge of, you know, of, 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 of going through like Wikipedia and trying to uh, understand, uh, you know, tech site, uh, a long form articles, it just, left me confused mm-hmm. Mike mm-hmm. I I but I feel like this is stuff that I really need to figure out because the world's mm-hmm. changing very rapidly right now so so Mike before uh, before I, I I rattle off mine what is your number three favorite big idea in science and, and tech big idea what's your favorite big I- number three on your list using germs to fight germs germs to fight germs okay so like like the like a coronavirus vaccine like vaccines would be a uh... Uh, a classic example where we take uh, fragments of a given pathogen, typically viruses, okay. and we use that to train our immune systems to create um, antibodies around that. But we also have uh, therapies where we use uh, reclaimed parts of viruses or uh, specific types of viruses called uh, bacteriophage, um, where we are using... Uh, pieces of their physiology basically to deliver molecules and targeted ways and things like gene therapies yeah. or CRISPR um, or even like some of the probiotic movement where we are basically like trying to create an environment that is fertile and advantageous to the kinds of bacteria that our body, body partners with enlisting them to wage war on the invaders that we don't want to be there. I, <laughs> you know, I, my mind automatically goes to like a cartoon I saw our kid where they like shrink down into like a little spaceship and go up somebody's nose and then go and like literally, I think it was also an episode of Family Guy. Uh, so, <laughs> where I've done, so you can tell Mike, I've done a lot of research on this topic, but I mean, compared to like what scientists are, scientists are actually doing, like, are they identifying germs that will, you know, proactively go and target other malicious germs in your system? Like what does the process look for 
I, I guess you're not training germs to fight germs, but you're certainly introducing bacteria into the body that will serve some greater purpose. How do they, how do they identify? I, because I, I'm just thinking like even like dosages and like what does that whole process even look like? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it depends on what you're doing. So obviously like vaccination research is a very specific um, epidemiological phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but you know, like what we're seeing, like some, uh, some diseases can be treated with, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the stool transplants. You basically take like one person's fecal matter and introduce it to another person's intestines. Mike, can I be, we're not even 10 minutes in and we're already talking fecal matter. So (laughs) I feel like, what can I say? I bring the fire, you know, that's just who I am. Um, but at the, but what we're doing essentially there is transplanting germs from yeah. one body to another, and uh, we're finding the ways in which, uh, you know, our our bodies, especially our GI tracts, are very rich ecosystems. Um, some estimates think that we could have ten uh, bacterial cells in our body for every human cell. Wow! And there are more. There's more diversity. In number of species, types of species, in an inch of your colon than there is in the entire Amazonian rainforest. Wow. So um, we're finding that our bodies are these vibrant ecosystems and ecologies, and part of health is cultivating those ecosystems in a way that they are healthy. You know, I'm sitting here sipping on my breakfast every day. I have this, like, a plant smoothie. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of spinach in here. Yeah. Sounds, sounds, sounds delicious. You're really selling me on it. It actually, it actually is quite good. I do enjoy yeah. it. But um, what I enjoy especially is the profound difference it's made in how I feel uh, physically. So even if I eat like junk food, uh, which I do a lot less than I used to thanks to heart disease, but if I've had something that is nutritionally balanced and has the fiber required for the flora and fauna in my gut to be healthy, uh, the kinds of foods that used to really make me suffer, they make me suffer much less. And we even know there's really complex relationships between bacteria and the neurons in our GI tract. A, A lot of people may not realize that we have a Hundreds of millions of neurons in our GI tract. We actually have more neurons in our guts than a dog has in their actual brain. Wow. And there is signaling between bacteria in our guts and those neurons using neurotransmitters. And so if our bacteria in our bellies are distressed, that can actually cause depression in our brains as the bacteria say, basically, we need help down here. And they try to motivate the brain so distant as it is uh, to, to change actions in a way that can help. So the old saying that, that feel like when people get like stress or anxiety, they're like, man, I just got that, that sinking feeling in my stomach. That's real. Like that is totally some, real. Th- there's some link between actual mood and something physiological going on in your guts when you have, You're, you know, th- those type of feelings. You could, oh, some, some, phys- some physicians refer to the gut as the second brain. And um, when you get depressed, the neurotransmitters are sad that are released in your brain are also released in your gut. Hmm. And so that can cause pretty significant gastrointestinal distress, including um, cramping, bloating, diarrhea, all those things can be caused by anxiety and sadness and those feelings because our whole body experiences that. One one of the problems we have in the West is over-identifying the human experience with the brain. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we look at the brain through the, through the lens of evolutionary biology, brains are something bodies made to solve problems. Bodies were here first. Bodies were doing their thing before brains even existed. Maybe that's why I have such a mellow disposition is because I grew up with the stomach of a billy goat. I mean, everything was going in. <laughs> Hot pockets, little Debbie snacks. It's really set me up well. Uh, uh, I'm so party. jealous. I'm the opposite. <laughs> I have like a glass stomach. All right. Well, hey, I want to move on to number two. But first, I feel like we. I, I, I'd be – I have to take the opportunity because, you know – Right now, we, we are in, in the middle of, of, of a global pandemic, and mm-hmm. a lot of people are saying, 
like the only way, the only way we're going to make it out, uh, or at least, you know, kind of get out on the other side of this, is if when the vaccine is ready, that people, that, you know, there will be a certain critical mass that actually use the vaccine and, mm-hmm. and aren't perpetuating, you know, kind of conspiracy theories or are just uncomfortable with the idea of vaccines. Before mm-hmm. we move on to number two, I, I, I mean, I feel like we kind of, I, I want to do the public a service of being able to hear your case about why a, a, a COVID-19 vaccine, w- taking it will be the right decision. Well, we'll have to see the outcome of trials first. So oh, well, what the about vaccines. this one that Putin's working on? They skip trials. Yeah, that and- concerns me, yeah. <laughs> so the way we, we test vaccines to make them safe, and to be clear, vaccines are the single most effective health intervention that humanity has ever devised, other than perhaps hand-washing. Um, but uh, hand-washing and sanitation was a major health lift. But other than that, I think vaccines have probably saved the most lives. And the way we make them work is the multiple phases of of testing. The first phase is where we test the efficacy of a vaccine. How well does it work? Yeah. Does and and the the, the standard there for a vaccine to move to additional trials is it has to work fifty percent better than doing nothing. Hmm. Uh, and then as we move deeper into phases, especially phase three, phase three is where you have tens of thousands of people, and you start looking for side effects, unexpected. Uh, behaviors uh, uh, or symptoms that come up from using a vaccine. And those those side effects can't be more severe in aggregate across a population group uh, than the disease itself. It actually must be much less severe. So the two things we are looking for, and, and there's many formulations of vaccine right now in trials against COVID-19, is number one, that efficacy to even move forward. And then we do have, uh, I think, one or two vaccines already moving into phase three trials. Those take a while. Yeah. Because it can take a while to see what kind of things come up. With COVID, we're probably going to be looking at a vaccine and then a booster you take 30 days later because coronaviruses are relatively difficult to create vaccines for. They mutate a lot. They like to steal RNA from their hosts constantly, which it creates a confusing profile for the immune system to target. Um they don't do that on purpose, by the way. They're viruses. All they do is reproduce. But yeah. uh, mechanically, they're a little nefarious. Um, and uh, But if, if we have good outcomes in phase one through phase three, then absolutely uh, a vaccine is a smart move. And, and also, to be clear, we know this. Phase three is going to miss some stuff. Every yeah. vaccine that first comes out. We get through phase three, you get to the general population, and then you get additional symptoms that come up, and then you'll see the revised formulations if it turns out that, you know, uh, 3% or 5% of people have an allergic reaction as opposed to what we consider acceptable, which is 1% to 2% for a given vaccine. And people might hear that, like, what? 2% of people have an allergic reaction? How's that okay? Well, because 2% of people getting, like, itchy bumps is way better than 2% of people dying. (laughs) And that's how we make decisions in vaccines. Well, I love, too, that their FSC standards was basically the same thing I got in my last performance review. 50% better than doing nothing. (laughs) 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 It's a high bar. Okay. (laughs) I'll take it. To be clear, though. No, we got to be clear. Doing nothing in this case is a high bar. Yeah. Doing nothing is what immune systems do. Yeah. And let's be clear, our immune systems mean an overwhelming majority of people who get COVID-19 recover. Yeah. So what we're saying is we have to do 50% better than human immune systems, which have been tuned and shaped by, you know, a billion years of evolution. All right, so so germs fighting germs, I love it. All right, mm-hmm. number number two on your list of your favorite big ideas right now in science and technology: packet switched networks. <laughs> you told me before we started, we we're like, I'm worried we're going to have the same ones, <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you just threw a combination of words at me that individually I know what they mean, but I've never heard them strung together like. That. So uh, the modern era rolled in with networks. Okay. But they were circuit switched. So uh, television, radio, and telephone 
all share something in common. You create a connection over some kind of carrier frequency yeah, and then transmit information in an analog way. So I tune my television to a specific radio frequency that's coming in through an antenna, and now I'm watching channel three. Yeah. Right? Well, but then we get the cable, and because we're piping in uh, an a- basically an antenna that's connected at both ends, yeah. our signal-to-noise ratio got so good we could shove so many more channels. So now I'm tuning into channel 91. Wow. Or if I made a phone call, at first I would pick up and an operate. I'd turn a thing, and it would make current and there'd be a ringing at the operator booth and a op, a literal person yeah. who lived in the town me went hey ted what's up what yeah i want to talk job, to mary like that's, hold on <laughs> like technology has cost us the world's coolest job you know what i mean it really to, has. to just hang out and talk on the phone all day you know oh let's go oh you need to talk to so-and-so okay you know like the phone operator was it's it's they were the smartest person in town because they knew everybody Absolutely. and they knew everybody's business but you know thanks a lot S- patch switch networks or packet switch <laughs> when they're okay. circuit switching so yeah. it started out a human operator they'd have a panel it looks like a recording studio now and they'd be like okay i need to connect ted and mary and there were numbers over those ports and they'd connect those ports and if you had to make a long distance call operators had to talk to operators and there was a lot of switching because you had to physically connect two points in the world together on a single circuit. That's circuit switching. So a big, big evolution happened with digital technology that has changed everything about the world, frankly. Packet switching. It means you have a connection to a device called a router. Yeah. And you send a packet of information at a time, and that router sends it somewhere else. It's basically, you could think of it like, The postal service and a packet has an address on it and anything, the the network knows how to route things with that. So that gives us the internet. That gives us the conversation we're having right now. Packet switch networks not only revolutionized telecommunications on Earth, but have also made it more efficient for us to communicate with spacecraft. So NASA has something called the Deep Space Network that has a packet-switched topology and allows spacecraft to be more robust in how they transmit and receive data, which is really important yeah. when you have spacecraft that are flung across the solar system. It, 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 the way that they transfer technology, is it like the way information gets in those packets, is it, is it like through some sort of like compression or, or, you know what I mean? Like how can they get such large amounts of information to, to get inside, up to basically kind of be in a, inside of a bundle when prior to that, I mean, we, we remember dial-up days when you're actually, mm-hmm. when your modem's running through a phone line, it takes forever. And I know obviously the speed of the infrastructure has a lot to do with it, but also how we package information. What does that actually look like if there's, compared to the traditional way uh, of sending information from one point to another digitally, or uh, I guess electronically, versus how we're doing it with packets. How do we, how do they how do they actually get the information inside of, of, a, of a bundle like that? Yeah, it's math. So um, and the, lo- the you language lost me then. then you lost the math. <laughs> the math the internet is based on, including back in dial-up days, has largely been a technology known as TCP/IP, often shortened to IP. Technically, IP is at version 4, the version we use all the time. Uh, That's been pretty consistent for a long time. And then um, these are technologies that tell networking equipment how to communicate with each other and transmit data. What we've changed is above the IP level, uh, the way the data we're putting in the packets, we change a lot with compression and and different topologies. And IP has been kind of adapted. Uh, over time, we're in the middle of a transition away from IP4 to IP version 6. Uh, there's a problem with TCP IP4. There's not enough addresses mm-hmm. for as many devices. And researchers who created IP way back in the day never imagined the internet would get as big as it has. And we ran out of IP addresses a little while ago. And we have to use something called NAT, Network Address Translation, to mitigate that problem. And IP version 6. Uh, is uh, is meant to overcome those limitations. And we're in the middle of transitioning to that as the internet right now in a way that's invisible to most people, but yeah. quite fraught with difficulty and anxious nights for network engineers. 
<laughs> it, it's crazy too, like the acceleration point of technology of how in the course of a lifetime, you know, I mean, cause my grand, my great grandparents had a rotary dial phone, you know, they had a switchboard mm -hmm. in their, in their basement from, from something. It's crazy. Just in the course of a single lifetime, that technology could evolve that quickly to, to, and, and it's still, I mean, obviously it's not slowing down. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, you could have been born, I mean, you'd be really young, but you could, you could in the same lifetime witness the Wright brothers fly a plane off a sand dune and also the, a plane landing on the moon or a plane, a, a, a mm -hmm. man landing on the moon. It's like, that's a crazy acceleration because the Wright brothers thing, let's just be honest, was not that impressive. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying like, <laughs> I've gone to Kitty Hawk or whatever, and you can see like, that's it. That's how far they made it. They get to be like the pioneers of aviation. That's like a, like, I think I could throw a football almost that far. <laughs> like, it, but, but all that to say is like the technology evolved within the course of a single lifetime. From mm -hmm. from them, you know, <laughs> basically kind of having this, you know, poorly constructed hang glider to us building a rocket ship, putting it on the moon. It's it's crazy, you know. Um, all right, Mike, and I, so th that's the reason packet switch networks are my number two. Is they've yeah. played a huge role in that process by making it easy to scale knowledge dissemination across uh, the entire species. Yeah, which for good is, and for bad. Yeah, but. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> <laughs> like also my, conspiracy theories my theories about vaccines and, <laughs> right. and fecal matter <laughs> right exactly. i've done a lot, of, a lot of research thank god i'm getting it to my computer quickly okay all right number okay number one i, I i'm i'm nervous about this because i'm i'm worried that i don't have it i'm worried about you're going to tell me about something that i didn't even know existed and oh I'm you're gonna, definitely gonna know this exists. okay okay let's hear let's hear number one on your favorite big idea right now the search for the theory of everything in physics Oh, I am so glad you brought this because okay, <laughs> I would give my I would give my explanation, but I'm gonna butcher it. Uh, uh, but but essentially, of my understanding, it's it's understanding how everything is sort of connected uh, through scientific like not, not like in a metaphysical way but in like some manner of physical way like there there's some connection point that is the op, that offers the operating rules for the universe that we might not be fully aware of so it, we it, know it, we're not fully aware of yeah so, so like we a hundred percent know right now our theories of physics are incomplete and, and how do we how do we know that? Like, what are the what are the key what are the big mysteries that the the unified theory is, is that the the right nomenclature? Yeah, unified theory is fine. Uh, um, what what are the big mysteries that if we if we cracked it that we would be able to solve right out of the gate? We don't even know, um, because the twentieth century saw this incredible progress in our understanding of the physical world. And therefore, our ability to make pers uh, predictions about it. Um, almost all the things we enjoy in modern life and the information era are powered by a very sophisticated, nuanced understanding of physics. Um, we are using light, <laughs> literal photons, to transmit information. Yeah. And we're able to do that because we have really good rules for understanding how light works. Um, but we have two well understood playbooks for reality number one is the theory of relativity as pioneered by albert einstein uh, and that tells us how things work at very large scales the relationship yeah. between space and time and gravity big 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 stuff um and it makes astoundingly accurate predictions we can use it without relativity gps satellites wouldn't work we couldn't understand the orbit of mercury like this is this is it has a real impact on the world um but when you start using the theory of everything to explain things smaller than atoms excuse me theory of relativity things smaller than atoms it doesn't work yeah you suddenly you have the universe change its behavior so we have a different set of rules called the standard model of physics um that describes how things smaller than an atom behaves. And again, it is uncannily accurate. Like this model that, you know, was developed in the 30s and 40s um, 
is has stood the test of time and held yeah. up. They just had one small problem. In order for it to work, they had to pretend gravity didn't exist. Hmm. So the theory of evolution, <laughs> everything, small thing, guys. the theory guys, of everything, this, yeah. relativity has to pretend that nothing is smaller than an atom. Yeah, basically, uh, although it can deal with light as a wave, it has difficulty with light as a particle, and then the standard model has to pretend gravity doesn't exist, and they and therefore they and when we've tried to bridge the two together. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, the math starts breaking apart. And so we've been looking mathematically for uh, equations and theories that allow those two models to continue to make accurate predictions about reality, but then also mesh with each other. Hmm. The standard model, for example, predicted uh, the Higgs boson particle long before yeah, we ever the, discovered the, it. The particle God particle. The it, God particle, yeah. so-called, yeah. So um, if we had a unified theory of everything, we would understand more of what additional particles we will discover and are out there and their behavior and how fields work and uh, all of these things. And that would allow us to create probably wildly more impressive technologies. Uh and we're we've kind of been in a slump. Yeah. Um, you know, we discovered the Higgs boson, and then different theories have predicted different particles that we'd find in particle accelerators. And as we've looked for them, they haven't appeared. And so yeah. the standard model keeps getting validated, and we know there's something to relativity because it works. But uh, we're at kind of a crisis in particle physics, um, and some of the mathematical models now are predicting. Uh, particles that we would need incredible energies to uncover. So I heard it said that, like, you know, well, the reason we're not finding a supersymmetry in a particle accelerator is we would need a particle accelerator, you know, the the size of the orbit of Neptune yeah. to uh, uncover. Well, gosh, <laughs> that, we're, yeah. we're a little while <laughs> from creating a solar system-sized particle accelerator. So... Um, but I still think it's a big idea because um, this is fundamentally the most amazing thing that yeah. science does for us is provide a fundamental understanding of how reality operates. And that's why it's my number one big idea in science. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought it because I I was <laughs> I, I had some that I was going to bring for my top three that I was just going to try to impress you and the listeners with. And I, <laughs> and I started reading them like, I'm not going to be able to... I, I'm still baffled at what dark matter is beyond just being. <laughs> I just know there's a lot of it. We don't know what it is. And then right. I was, and then I was like, oh, you know, I should I should talk about wormholes. Like if we're ever gonna get anywhere, we got to figure out this wormhole thing. And so I so I started going down my own wormhole. And then there was like, you know, for for those to work, there has to be something called exotic matter, which can prevent the wormhole from collapsing in on itself. And essentially how I heard it described in one of my uh, uh, just random uh, internet rabbit holes was it, it would be like two black holes on different parts of the universe creating a connection point that you could that you could go across. But in order to do that, we would have to understand things that are so far beyond our understanding that it's it's unlikely. Well, it look, I mean, the, the the link Einstein made between distance and duration, you know, that they're actually this part of the same sort of fabric was a pretty radical idea that changed everything not that long ago. Do you think, you know, obviously building a, a solar system-sized particle accelerator, considering, you know, we, we can barely get uh, absentee ballots to people who need them, seems like a major feat of humanity. Is there another way that we could determine what what is, you know, the answer to some of these mysteries without kind of, with just using math and, and, and what we can currently observe? Well, using math, we've already got several models that seem to work. Yeah. But the way science works is you have to make a model that makes a prediction you can test. Yeah. And we haven't we we haven't figured out ways to test this other than finding particles. Yeah. Um, but kind of to your point, like what's a theory of everything matter? Well, wormholes and warp drive are things that could potentially go from science fiction to things we build with a theory of everything, you know. Um, 
in existing physics, warp drives are imagined to be possible using something called negative energy, which was theoretical until relatively recently. And we can create a negative energy field with a pos- with about the mass energy of a red blood cell. Yeah. And early mathematical models uh, told us that we could create warp drive if you created a negative energy uh, field with the mass energy of Jupiter. <laughs> it's just a, so what are we waiting a, for? It's yeah. a big jump. But uh, then someone iterated a model and found that if you created a, a torus-shaped warp field instead of a spherical one, you dramatically lower the energy requirement so we only need to get to like you know a large cargo truck mass energy compared to still the big jump from a red blood cell but it starts to seem more feasible so there is a possibility that we could um, build mathematical models not validate them but start trying to engineer things using them and if they work that starts to tell us something right so like if you build a uh, a warp drive theory based on M theory, for example, and we don't validate with particle accelerators, but you build a ship and it tra- travels faster than light, like that's going to be a pretty good validation that you're on the right track. Yeah, I would say a, a light speed ship. <laughs> I think we nailed it, guys. I think, right. I think we finally right. did. Yeah. You want proof? I'll the trick proof. is going to be. The trick will be securing like $2 trillion in funding on the like, we think this might work in the map. (laughs) So so here's the hard ask here. Tight $2 trillion. (laughs) And the next thing we're going to do is shrink people down, and we're going to fight germs that fight germs on little spaceships. If we have any left over, I think we can crack crack that one too. Hey, what's up, everybody? I just want to take a quick break and let you know that today's show is brought to you by Audible. Now, Audible is the world's largest producer and provider of original spoken word entertainment and audiobooks. Now, if you're like me, there are some times when you're just not feeling it, you don't want to go for that run, you don't want to do the workout, or you're dreading some kind of chore you have to do around the house. Well, Audible's a game changer because it actually kind of makes me look forward to that type of stuff because that's an opportunity to consume some really interesting content. Now, I want to make a couple quick recommendations if you want to try Try Audible and, uh, you know, see what kind of content they have out there. Uh, I would start with Talking to Strangers. It's the latest book from Malcolm Gladwell. And what's so cool about the book, in addition to being from the mind of of Malcolm Gladwell, is that it kind of blends the podcast form with audiobooks. So when you hear a quote from someone, it's actually the audio from that person. There's original music in the in the uh, book. It's it's a really interesting experience. If you like his podcast, Revisionist History, you're really going to like talking to strangers. And if you're liking today's podcast with Science Mike, check out Mike McCart's two books, both of which are on Audible, Finding God in the Waves and his latest, You're a Miracle, which is, is about a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. Uh, you know, the, the links between mental health and uh, neuroscience and, and, and science and our new understandings of how the brain functions. A super fascinating book. And you can actually try Audible right now for free. That's right. If you go to audibletrial.com slash listed, that's audibletrial.com slash listed. You can, you can start off and, and check out the service for free. Now, if you sign up, members get one credit to book any title plus two Audible originals from a monthly sele- selection. So tons of great audio content. Uh, the other thing, too, is it's just really good technology. You can listen offline. It holds your spot for you. So if you listen from device to device, you can pick right back up where you got started. So it's definitely something you're going to check out. Go to audibletrial.com slash listed. And you can try it for free right now. All right, back to the show. Okay, so so in my number three and number two might be related, and that's why I'm interested okay. to talk to you because I think the first time I, I I I heard you in any kind of interview, you were on with Pete Holmes, and you had a a a prosthetic brain with you. I think uh, is that something you still possess? Look at that! Oh man, I hope I hope that goes a lot of places with you. Did you tell Everywhere. me one time you carried it onto an airplane and got a weird look at in TSA for carrying a yes. life-size human brain? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a very weird look. <laughs> You're on a very special kind of watch list for that move. 
<laughs> like, uh, we're gonna need you to open this container, but is it safe? <laughs> you know, you know, you should have done. You should have brought it in like a Rubbermaid cooler. <laughs> like, had your brain in. But a cooler. basically, was right. Like, <laughs> I used to carry it in a cardboard box and got too beat up, so then I put it in like a plastic container. And you're like fidgeting everywhere. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm in a real hurry here. You know, <laughs> I there's someone. To, let's just say someone is expecting this package very quickly. Uh, right. Okay. So, so you, you, you know a lot about neurology and brain function, and the reason I wanted to bring this is because it, it, it has a couple of curious uh, things about it. So Elon Musk recently announced you know, sort of a new undertaking, Neuralink, and mm-hmm. from my understanding, it's, it's, and I'll get you to dig into it a little bit more, but from my understanding, uh, like in layman's term, it's, it's being able to connect some sort of uh, uh, fiber optic type of digital circuitry into the brain that could allow humans to have some sort of interfacing with artificial intelligence more intuitively. And it could also have big, uh, um, it could do things for people who maybe be, are, are paraplegic or have or Parkinson's disease or, or, or certain uh, conditions it could aid. But he also made a couple, you know, kind of surprising statements about some of its use, which it could instantly alter moods. It could also uh, be, be used for like stress and anxiety relief, or it can pump music directly into your head and actually allow you to quote unquote hear tones that are outside the spectrum of what the human ear can actually, you know, like super, like dog, you know, like a dog whistle or something really low that normally we wouldn't hear. It bypasses the whole ear canal and goes straight into your brain. Mike, what are your thoughts about Elon Musk Neuralink. Is it cool or is it terrifying? It's cool and it's terrifying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, so that's the thing about technology. It's almost always morally neutral. Yeah. And it's in our application. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm increasingly pessimistic about our species' ability to apply things. <laughs> Could right? you imagine getting like Spotify autoplay ads right in your head? Like that would, you know, even just even just suggesting that it could have an application for entertainment that makes me very nervous because it seems like anytime there's a fusion of entertainment and technology, it's quickly manipulated for commercial purposes. You know. Okay, let's talk about fundamentally about what it is first. Okay, because this is where I'm unclear. I mean, I know conceptually what it is, but I have no idea how it actually works. Right. Function. You know? So to get something into a computer, you've got to translate it into ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. We are doing that right now. So yeah. we're both in front of a microphone. And as we talk, that vibrates a membrane connected to a magnet and creates an electrical signal, um, a, a wave, a wave, uh, waveform, you know, peaks and troughs up and down. And that moves along a cable to a, 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 a box called an audio interface. And in that uh, box is an analog to digital converter. And what that does is it samples that wave many, many, many times a second and turns it into a value that's digital. And then the computer gets that. And now it's digital. Now the computer can do stuff with it. But then for the computer to do anything you care about with it, it has to get turned back into something that you can... Uh, experience through your senses. So that might be displaying the waveform on a monitor. And so then the monitor becomes a display that creates things, uh, makes light based on that sound. Or you can connect the computer to a speaker, but you have to run the process in reverse. Now you have to have a DAC, a digital to analog converter, that then takes that digital information and creates an electrical waveform that can be sent to a speaker or set of headphones. Um, That's how computers work. Neuralink, what they're talking about is <laughs> putting the sensor I in love your it that brain. It's so devious that you actually laugh at it. Like I can't believe it. Well, it's just—it's so science fiction. Like, yeah. so let's sample neurological activity and turn that into digital information, and let's create the capacity for the computer now to, after it's done something to have an output that goes into a, th- a mechanism that's accessible to brains. So since our brains are uh, electrochemical devices, uh, the, you know we, we roughly can work with the brain chemically right now through things like antidepressants yeah. or 
uh, recreational drugs, all these sorts of things that create, they interact with the chemistry of the brain, although in very brute force ways. Yeah. Um, what we're talking about here with Neuralink is interfacing with the brain, not with fiber optics, but electric, electric electrical energy. So um, basically, if you put sensors in particular points of the brain, you become aware when neurons are firing. And if you've mapped a brain and you understand what that, what what those neurons may be involved with it in terms of what circuit in the brain they're in, by applying precisely timed electrical stimulation, um, number one, you can you can ascertain roughly what's happening in that brain, and number two, you can start to be a part of those circuits, uh, and then that you know, theoretically, if you are able to sample every single neuron at every single synapse, you could gather extremely high fidelity information about the brain, although how we would do that medically is is basically unimaginable today. Yeah. Uh, but you can learn quite a lot with less information, and if you target the right parts of the brain. So right now, for example, if you look at an fMRI scanner uh, at someone looking at simple geometry, we're at the point already we're in a brain scan without seeing what someone's seeing. We can tell if they're looking at a square or a circle or a triangle. Yeah. So now you imagine instead of an fMRI, those are electrodes in the visual cortex, and then you can do the opposite. Is it possible to have someone see a square that isn't there? Uh, or we're already kind of uh, with really advanced hearing aids. Some of those are already um, direct biological interfaces where we let people hear sound. So all those things are certainly possible. Um, it's but it you know it's 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 complicated like. Yeah. When you're talking about things like uh, changing mood, you're talking about implanting electrodes deep in the brain through something called deep brain stimulation. Yeah. Uh, and like, how comfortable are people going to be having a microfilament that's six inches long in- <laughs> injected into the base of their brain? And then who do you trust with that access? And, yeah. you know, already it's pretty creepy, like how much Facebook looks at, you know, what I'm doing on the internet. Yeah. And do I want. Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg to get like some access to my thought life. Yeah, your literal, your, your the inner workings of your, including of your things happening life. in my brain that I am not consciously aware of. Yeah. Um. So it's cool and very quickly can be you can imagine as dystopian. You, you're you're an early adopter. I'm assuming this is one you're going to sit out uh, until at least version two. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So this, my number two is kind of related, and it's a big idea that I just don't understand. I mean, uh, I say that, but then if it's like Halo Infinite now on Neuralink only, <laughs> I'm going to be like, ah, damn it. I'm in. I'm in. I'm okay. in. <laughs> so i got to level up here. New, new Fortnite. I get a new, new Fortnite skin if I get this implant. Dude, right. I got it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> They'll find a way. Okay. So this is sort of related, um, and I've been fascinated with this idea uh, uh, ever since years and years ago. I listened, do, you, do you ever listen to Radio Lab? Uh, of course. The podcast. So years yeah. ago, I, the I was gold just, standard of podcast. It really is. Uh, good old Jad Adumrad. He I, he's like if there was a Mount Rushmore, uh, he'd be one of the podfathers on there. Um, yes. So so I listened to this episode, and my big idea, and it's not because I think there's probably uh, untapped medical potential, although there may be, but it's just something I'm very curious about is placebo. I listened to an episode of Radio Lab years ago, and they they told the story of it started off with a doctor. Doctor who his his name was actually Dr. Al, Dr. Albert Mason, and there's an interesting uh, article about this over at wnycstudios.org that they released with this episode. People can go back and, and listen to it if they want. Uh, but essentially, this doctor ran out of anesthesia uh, when he was like delivering. He was he was a uh, you know he's delivering babies, and he ran out of anesthesia or anything to help the these mothers deal with pain. So he developed a a method where essentially he would convinced them that he had done something that would relieve their pain and they stopped feeling pain during childbirth. Um, he went on to kind of study hypnosis and uh, he he came across this child. And this is a documented case. Uh, like I said, you can actually go look at, at, at pictures of this. I'm going to read just an excerpt from this article that he began treating a teenage patient whose skin was so ravaged that uh, he that after two unsuccessful skin grafts, plastic surgeons agrees they agreed they could do nothing else to help him. 
Uh, Dr. Mason knew uh, he was up against a big challenge. Most of the boy's body, everything but his face, neck, and chest, was covered in a black, horny layer of skin that Mason said felt as if it was as hard as a fingernail, and it was so inelastic that any attempt to bend resulted in the cracking of the surface, which it, it gets very gross from there. I'm yeah. not going to get too much into detail. Sure. Uh, so uh, Dr. Mason actually used uh, hypnosis on patients that had warts before, and sure enough, by convincing patients that he could cure their warts with hypnosis, the, 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 the warts went away. So this is from the article. So he decided to start on the boy's left arm. He specified one body part uh, at a time to order in order to isolate a direct cause and effect from his hypnosis, and the arm cleared up under two weeks. That's at, later, he found out that he wasn't actually treating a bad case of warts. It was actually what had been thought to be an incurable skin condition. Uh, yeah. So I did a deep dive on, on placebo effect and how, for some people, it can work just as well as an actual medicine for reasons that we don't fully understand. And I was reading something the other day that people actually report side effects like hives even though, you know, because they're told that's a, you know, they, they don't realize they're taking a placebo, a sugar pill, uh, but are told, hey, this is a new kind of medicine that may help you, but you may get these side effects. And they actually manifest the side effects. Mm -hmm. Mike, what are your thoughts on placebo? And is it, because I also know it has its critics, that, that they think it's, it, it could be some degree of, uh, not manipulation, but, but the, the power of suggestion is, is pretty powerful, especially on, on how people perceive how they're feeling. Do you think, what, what, what do you think is behind dramatic cases of placebo effect working and its potential to do anything, you know, more useful than what we're doing now? Well... I mean, placebo's well documented, well understood that it happens. Yeah, it has a an evil twin called the nocebo effect. Yeah. So basically, if you if media starts talking about wheat allergies, suddenly more people medically demonstrate wheat allergies, mm. and it, you can start testing who has a nocebo wheat allergy versus an actual wheat allergy by giving people. Um, a scratch test or a pill, and you tell them there's gluten in it. Yeah. And there's not. Yeah. And people with nocebo still break out in hives. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're faking, by the way. Yeah. The hives are real. So um, what the heck is going on? Our thoughts and our feelings are real physical actions in our body. Hmm. They have electrical components they have molecular components. So um, you cannot have a feeling without it impacting your body. Hmm. And you can't have a thought without it impacting your body. Yeah. And here we are, these, these sacks of amino acids and DNA and RNA and proteins and lipids and all these chemicals interacting in enormous complexity, right? Like... We need supercomputing clusters to literally, like, building-sized million or billion-dollar machines to simulate, like, one protein folding in a cell. And yeah. they can't even do it in real time. I, 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 I just have to note, too, you came up with the most unsexy way I've ever heard the human body described as sacks <laughs> of proteins and lipids. <laughs> I I don't mean to I don't mean to I just, <laughs> I'm just mean like I'm just messing with you I'm like just with profound you. complexity, mm -hmm. um, and so viruses and bacteria come in and they interact and they cause changes in our body and new foods cause changes in our body and how they interact with our immune system. So our immune system, when you get sick, most of what you suffer from is your immune system attacking a virus. For example, COVID-19, you know, we, we've done tests. When you put influenza in a Petri dish with human cells, the human cells start exploding. Hmm. Uh, and in like an hour or two, they're all gone. Yeah. Uh, when you put SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus behind COVID-19 in a Petri dish, it really doesn't destroy any cells. For some reason, uh, SARS-CoV-2 acts like a matador that just drives our immune system into a state of blind fury, and then it attacks our own bodies. Well, 
warts are an immunoresponse to a virus. Yeah. And so you can imagine if this, what I'm saying is the division between mental health and physical health is a false dichotomy. Hmm. All of this is we're talking about what bodies do. Yeah. Our feelings and our minds are part of our bodies. Um, and so that relationship is not deeply explored and is not deeply understood. And frankly, the finer points of our molecular biology and our neurophysiology are still pretty unknown. I tell people a lot. If you look at the, the state of the art in neuroscience today, we're probably about where... Galileo was with cosmology. (laughs) We just got a telescope for the first time and we're like, oh my God, planets are round. (laughs) Like they're fierce. You know what I mean? So um, that's where we are today. And so, you know, there's no telling where that ends up going um, in our understanding of medical science. I couldn't even meaningfully speculate. I would sound not like Galileo, but like some rando <laughs> read a paper well, well, by Galileo and in that time, yeah. speculating on on relativity. Yeah, well, and that's what makes this, that's why I wanted to bring this one, because it, it quickly goes to like, am I like, you, you know, like, it's like, what was that Marianne Williams, what was, was there the, the, the woman who ran for like the DNC nomination yes. that you're like, I have no idea what she's saying. You know, like, am I, like, I feel like talking about this idea, which is in some cases observable by, you know, medical standards, that there's some, you know, relationship between, like you were saying, mental health and, and mood and, and, and the way you're thinking and actually physical manifestations of, of you know, health or a different kind of immune reactions. It's like, uh, this isn't too far removed from some people that are into some wacky things. Do you think it's an area that we will come, we will develop a better understanding of without kind of going to, you know, like the secret zone? You know what I mean? So like, let, 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 that is a really good point because one of my frustrations as a science communicator is I have found religious fundamentalists and social progressives have the same tendency to take a a glimpse of the unknown in sciences and then over-prescribe it immediately. Yeah. So if there is some scientific validity to a particular physician was able to treat an obscure skin condition through hypnosis, then... (laughs) <laughs> reality is made of our thoughts or yeah. or it, or and, or and god I, will hear anything heal anything we ask <laughs> or we can we can cure cancer with our minds like yeah. don't make that leap what yeah. the science says is there is something interesting here and right now our position is fundamentally ignorance yeah and because we are meaning making animals we try to rush past the hard work of decades and decades of rigorous research. You know, uh, homeopathic medicine is a word to describe things that failed trials, hmm. right? So uh, essential oils smell great. Yeah. But they are not uh, an effective medical intervention, except to the degree that they help us mitigate and, and take advantage of the placebo and nocebo effect. So um, what you're telling me is the mood board that I created full of jet skis will not bring a jet ski into my life. That was all for nothing. Well, now here's the problem. It might. But yeah. But the way it's doing it is it's influencing your behavior subconsciously in a way that leads you towards getting a jet ski. Yeah. Um, and that that's the complexity. Uh, and I have a, a number of dear friends um, – uh, not a number, the vast majority of my dear friends who are tend to be very educated people, um, people love woo. They just love yeah. it. And you can see because of my reputation, there's like people get really self-conscious when they know they are bringing some woo to me. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. they know I'm just going to be do like... You ever, do you ever like... How do you, how do you mitigate that like... 
Because here's the thing. People who do believe in like woo, you know what I mean? Who believe some kind of out there stuff are, are for my experience, I don't want to be, I don't really like stereotype, but a lot of them are very er- seemingly earnest people, you know, like they, they, they sure. genuinely believe it. And, and, but how do you navigate that conversation without being like, just like the buzzkill? You know what I mean? Where the, there are people who it's like, look, man, if, if, if you think, you know, rubbing lavender oil in your armpits every night is gonna, you know, cause your hair to grow back, then great. You know, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like some of the well, number one, my wife literally calls me Captain Buzzkill. Okay. <laughs> um, cause everybody be talk- like, there'll be like a big woo discussion uh, with our friends around at like a dinner table and I'll yeah. just get like really quiet and somebody be like Mike what are you thinking it's like I'm, I'm good hard I'm pass good. hard pass and they're like no 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 we want to hear your thoughts I'm like you really don't yeah yeah <laughs> you know? and somebody be like no 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 tell us tell us tell us and I'll just be like couldn't be more wrong and right. <laughs> you know it's nothing a, about what you're talking yeah it's the cabinet battle in hamilton i start out you yeah. must be out of your anyway um and, and uh but the other thing if people if it's working for i'm okay with people believing what they want to believe if it helps them as long as it doesn't hurt people yeah so yeah. like if you think essential oils are helping you great yeah if you think vaccines cause autism, now we're going to have a tough conversation. Yeah, yeah. now there's a real cost to, to mm-hmm. disinformation. Okay, speaking of woo, my number one is something that I've... <laughs> speaking of woo, let me put uh, on my safety belt. Okay, so this is, uh, this is something that I've been fascinated about for a really long time, but don't fully understand. And I've heard it, I've heard it like manipulated by... Uh, this is a lot of qualifying for my number one, but it is number one. But I've heard it manipulated by, by people who are kind of... On the woo end, there was a movie uh, like "What the Bleep Do We Know?" that 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 this was kind of a, one of the central constructs of, um, and, and and the more you the more I've tried to understand it, as I feel like uh, people who actually know what they're talking about understand it, the more confused I get, and that is the observer effect. And you know, kind of the the first time I saw oh, yeah. it. Like, basically Schrodinger's cat. Like, you know, Edwin Schrodinger had this, you know, the, the what was it? I read a book about him, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where he said it was so baffling to him that he created this sort of absurd thought experiment that there is essentially a cat inside of a box. There's a device inside the box that could randomly go off and kill the cat, or it could not. And until you observe... Until you open the box and see the cat either alive or dead, it exists in some sort of superposition where it is both fully alive and fully dead, existing at the same time, and the wave patterns don't collapse and, and reality isn't decided until there's some sort of outside observation or measurement. Uh, you know, they, they've done something called the double slit, ex- the double split experiment where they double shoot- slit. Double slit experiment where, again, this is a, a horrible explanation of it, but essentially they shoot particles through these two slits to see if it will leave a, a certain kind of pattern on a screen behind these two slits. Depending on whether they're measuring the particles or they're not measuring the particles, they behave differently. Now, am I butchering that entirely? And if so, what the heck's going on? Um, so in Schrodinger's cat specifically... yeah. The um, the experiment is you have poison. The poison will be released by a, a radiation detector. You have a, a radioactive particle that has a 50-50 chance of decaying in the amount of time the cat is in the box. Okay. So that's how you bring in the quantum element to it. Um, and it's this notion of superposition where subatomic particles can be in multiple states at once. And in the way the the dual slit experiment, um, depending on whether there is observation made or not, you either get discrete um, lines on a piece of film or you get like gradients as yeah. you would get from a wave or lines as you would get from a particle. Um, the thing with the observer effect, as we understand it today, uh, that you have to remember is it's not as fancy as the word observation applies. Okay. Because of the way physics works, observation means particle interaction. 
Okay. So if I view something with my eyes or with a measurement instrument, there has to be a particle that carries information, which means another particle will strike the particle, causing the duality to collapse. Yeah. See what I mean? Um, and that means like uh, particles are introduced into the box uh, before the photons strike the film and the wave particle duality experiment. It is still super weird. Yeah, because um, because what it what some people's probably incorrect or simplistic interpretation is is that somehow the consciousness or, or some sort of like conscious outside observer dictates reality existing. Like I've heard it framed that like basically if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, it probably didn't fall because it probably wasn't there. Like essentially, like there's something about conscious observation that is dictating reality happening. Now that. I, that seems completely insane to me, but I've also but I've heard people sort of make that case when they're trying to describe what's happening on some sort of quantum level. Yeah, well, you know, if you if you use an instrument as the observer, it collapses superposition. Yeah. Uh, so that so is a is a light meter a conscious observer? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're getting really well, deep in philosophy well, how, there. How high tech is this light meter? <laughs> right. Um, but that that's sort of what I mean. Um, now that said, you know, uh, we've been looking for the edge of what can be put in superposition because you immediately go, well, you can't put a cat in yeah. superposition. It it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, but, it can't be dead and alive. At but, uh, because it's only subatomic particles. But we've done now the wave, the dual, the wave slit experiment. We've done it with atoms and kept atoms in superposition, which that was a big deal. Yeah. And then we started doing it with molecules and then increasingly large molecules. And so we're finding we can put some pretty big stuff into superposition. Um... So, you know, there is this question of, like, forget a tree. Two asteroids collide in the asteroid belt. Okay. Where we know there is probably not a conscious observer. Yeah. Uh, we know the particles, light leaving that phenomenon does stay in superposition until it's observed. You know, we, we can see, we can run the wave particle experiment with photons that left stars hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah. And they obey the terms of the experiment. So in an odd way, an observer is impacting the behavior of a particle of light that was emitted from a star before human civilization, before hominids appeared on the earth. You see what yeah. I mean? Like that yeah. is, that gets weird. Um, and we, you know, this is, this is an interesting and unknown idea in physics that we're still exploring that kind of that's why my number one thing in mind yeah. and why we did end up having a, a, a the same topic yeah was that search for a theory of everything things yeah. like superposition uh defy not only our intuitive understanding of the universe but actually challenge some of our models in physics as well like yeah. we can we can mathematically describe superposition we don't know what it is yeah and we don't know when it does and does not work yeah, because it's counter to, like you said, just the basic intuition of how the how things operate, which it's either one thing or it's another thing. Not it's both things at the same time. Until one part of it is measured, then it then all of a sudden for some reason the superposition collapses into a single position. It just seems totally baffling about what's actually going on there. Yeah. And it's because superposition doesn't have any bearing on human survival. Yeah, And all yeah. of our senses and all the ways we think and all of our intuition, those are tools that our brains and bodies use to help us survive. And understanding relativity or the standard model or quantum superposition, none of those things help us eat, mate, and survive. And so our intuition is not equipped to deal with them. So you're telling me understanding it better won't bring the jet ski to me either? because I that don't think so. <laughs> You know, there's this great line in, um, I believe it is Kaiku's um, book. Um, I don't remember which book it is. The Future of the Mind, maybe? 
Um, anyway, he's like talks about how intelligence is a predictor for mating success. Yeah. And he basically says, hold on, nerds. I'm not talking about book smart. I'm talking about quarterback smart. Yeah. And it's just like one of the greatest lines in a nonfiction yeah. book I've ever read. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, <laughs> we live in a universe full of paradoxes. Yes. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not that you can memorize so many decimal places of pi. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's that you can you can huck a piece of leather pretty far in the right spot. Well, but yeah. I mean, and make the strategic implications of... Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, I and, actually... And it, playing a quarterback is actually remarkably sophisticated, and I hate football, but yeah. um, I, I, get, I get his point. Well, and, and two, it's one of the few positions in the sport where you're constantly under physical danger, a fi like yeah. actual a physical threat. Like if I'm playing basketball and, and, and I take a jump shot and I miss, I'm not going to get – there's no one going to hit me. You know what I mean? If the quarterback holds the ball just a little bit too long or puts or makes the wrong decision, there's physical danger, you know, that he has, he has the threat of violence against him just for making a wrong decision. It is, it is an underappreciated uh, Well, and they're also like the most normal person on a football field. Like yeah, if a quarterback, exactly. wa quarterback walks in, you're like, that's a pretty fit guy. Yeah. But yeah. the rest of the team are like... They look like members of the Avengers, you know? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where, where Peyton Manning walked. And, and they even talk like, like Peyton Manning. If you, it's like you don't even need to be a football fan to know Peyton Manning. He even talks like just like a, like a dad who lives next door and tucks polos into, you know, plaid shorts. Oh, hey, I'm Peyton Manning. Oh, right. Geico, you know? Like, right. It's <laughs> yeah. like regular guys and then Thanos and the Hulk are running <laughs> <laughs> So what you're saying is this we've discovered that the peak human condition is is a, is a good quarterback. I think I, I think that's uh, you know what we can all try to subscribe to. Mike, this was a lot of fun, man. Thanks, Jesse. It's good to be here. Yeah. Hey, listen, everyone can follow Mike on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Mike McCard. And like I said, check out the book. You are you're a miracle and a pain in the ass. And downloads uh, ask science mike trust me it's uh it's it'll make you smarter guaranteed by me and if, if that guarantee if if it, if it doesn't live up to that guarantee he's at he's at mike mccarg on twitter let him know <laughs> he'll figure out a way to make it right but he's personally backing my personal guarantee all right that's it that's right. listen leave a rating review thanks for listening everyone we'll see you next time